Hi, everybody. This is Kara Fitzgerald. New Frontiers in Functional Medicine is here every month, bringing you the best minds in functional medicine. And we would not be able to do this over the years without the generous contributions from our sponsors, Metagenics, Integrative Therapeutics, and Biotics Research. The mission of Metagenics is to lead the movement in making personalized nutritional intervention the standard of care in the treatment and prevention of disease and the promotion of optimal health. For over 30 years, Metagenics has been dedicated to scientific discovery, innovative products, unparalleled quality, education, and practitioner partnerships to support lifestyle functional nutrition. For more information, visit Metagenics at metagenics.com. Biotics Research. For four, over 40 years, the foundations of biotics research has been innovation and quality. Their goals remain unchanged. Innovative ideas, carefully researched concepts, and product development with advanced analytical and manufacturing techniques. Biotics nutritional products are of superior quality and effectiveness and available exclusively to healthcare professionals. Visit them at bioticsresearch.com. Integrative Therapeutics is focused on inspiring a better lifestyle through better health. By providing meticulously formulated nutritional supplements and valuable resources, Integrative Therapeutics promises to enrich your patients and embolden your practice. Welcome to your Integrative Therapeutics. Find them at integrativepro.com. Roll. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine, and today is no exception. I am absolutely, absolutely, absolutely excited to be with Dr. Dale Bredesen. You know who he is. You're familiar with the work, his work, and likely many of you are using Recode in practice, and um, we really, it's quite a gift. Um, thank you for for this, the work that you've done. Let me give you a little bit of background on, on Dr. Bredesen. He's, an internationally, he's internationally recognized as an expert in the mechanisms of neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, The End of Alzheimer's, um, and that was 2017. Uh, he held faculty positions at UCSF, UCLA, and the University of uh, California at San Diego. Uh, he, he's directed the program on aging at the Burnham Institute before coming to Buck Institute in 1998 as its founding president and CEO. He is currently a professor at UCLA. Dr. Bredesen, welcome to New Frontiers. Thanks so much for having me, Dr. Fitzgerald. So your journey, I'm, you know, I was kind of struck by uh, your story in, in that, you know, in 2011, you were you know, clearly putting together this kind of systems approach. You were realizing that a systems approach was essential to treating um, Alzheimer's. And as you attempted to push such a study through IRB, which, you know, I've been there, it was rejected. <laughs> and um, because all of the other, you were clearly bucking the trend back then. So my, I, I guess I have two questions, but the, the primary one was how did you move into systems thinking with regard to Alzheimer's and, you know, really how has your community um, of, you know, research clinicians received you? Yeah. So we got this from the test tube actually. So we were looking at what drives the neurodegenerative process. So that we thought, you know, the, this is in the area of greatest biomedical therapeutic failure, whether you have ALS or Alzheimer's or Lewy body or frontotemporal dementia, 
there hasn't been anything effective to do about these illnesses. And so we wanted to understand why. What's, the, what's missing in the model? Could we understand the fundamental nature of these processes? And when we looked at Alzheimer's disease, which we did for many years and published lots of papers on this, what we saw was at the heart of this is a molecular switch, APP, that is literally pushed toward a synaptoblastic and supportive role or pushed towards synaptoclastic signaling, literally pulling back. And so when we started to look at, okay, let's, let's get a medicine that pushes it toward the synaptoblastic side. So we actually screened thousands of drug candidates and we identified several that have that interesting property. But as we got down to writing the original proposal for doing this, this clinical trial on a drug candidate, you know, I realized, well, wait a minute, there are a lot of things that are actually pushing this in the same direction. So just trying to short circuit this by, by trying to block something is not going to have the effect that we want. So it's actually sitting in my office back in 2011 um, in front of the whiteboard and kind of scratching my chin. And I thought, well, wait a minute, what if we start to add, maybe we do some brain training in addition, you know, maybe that'll help increase your trophic support and that may improve the electrophysiology. Okay. And then I thought, well, wait a minute, what about the hormonal alteration? And of course, Obviously, you know, it took, I was a little bit dim, but it took the light a few minutes to go off. And I thought, well, wait a minute. Why, from a disease that is 100% terminal, why would we withhold anything, any chance we could get? Because there had never been examples of people turned around. I thought, well, let's, let's do everything we can that fits the molecular biology. You can literally trace pathways from estradiol, from NF-kappa-B and inflammatory pathways directly to APP. And so I thought, okay, let's see if we can change that balance by looking at the various pieces. And of course, at the time, I knew nothing about functional medicine. Um, I had heard of Jeff Bland of back in 2008, uh, but I, do, I knew nothing about this. So um, it was fortunate for us that there was so much out there already where people were looking at root cause medicine. And you know, five minutes of looking at this, how could you want to do anything else? Of course, the idea of trying to trick nature to treat somebody with a drug that has absolutely nothing to do with what's causing the problem makes no sense. And so going after, so I thought, okay, let's go after the things that are actually doing this and let's see if we can understand for each person. And then of course, as we started to look, we realized, ah, different people, obviously, no surprise, have different things that are driving this pathophysiology. And of course, Alzheimer's is just something that a pathologist tells you. It's kind of like saying your car doesn't work because you have car not working syndrome. It doesn't mean anything by its name. And so you really have to understand what is driving the process. And of course, that's what has ended up making it so that you can actually make changes. And you know, it's not a surprise, this is happening in functional medicine with many complex chronic illnesses. So I actually think this will be the century, just as the last century was the century of simple medicine and simple diseases like, like tuberculosis and pneumococcal pneumonia, the 21st century will be the century of functional medicine in which virtually all of these complex chronic illnesses will be largely, if not completely eradicated, uh, damped down tremendously by use of these multi-pronged, personalized, precision medicine type of approaches where you can now go after the specific drivers. 
And so interestingly, the science has really supported the functional medicine model much more than it has supported the model that I was trained in. Yeah. So not surprisingly, all of my colleagues are upset. You know, how, you know, how, how dare you say that amyloid isn't the be-all, end-all, and how dare you say that you're going to do a multi-pronged trial? Um, it's, it's kind of funny, actually. Uh, but I think this is what happens. There is so much you know, there's so much disruption in Silicon Valley, which is right near here. And there's, in medicine, it's so much about tradition and permission instead of disruption. We need a little more Silicon Valley. We need a little more disruption in medicine because it has failed to address these illnesses. Well, I'll tell you what, thank you. <laughs> but I, I, it just, I, clearly you were poised to do this kind of thinking, but yes, I mean, one of the most satisfying aspects of practicing functional medicine is to do a drill down into the multifactorial pathophysiology of any condition and begin to tease a, apart how you might actually help this human being sitting in front of you. So thank God it, it is, it's very, it's deeply satisfying medicine. And you ahad upon that in 20, 2011 and really kind of the, the rest is history. I, um, I, I'm just so appreciate that you started to do that. And I think that makes that likely, that must make your world as a scientist all the, the more interesting as well to, to pull all the, the potential threads, you know, influencing. Well, it's interesting, you know, the, the science, the, what we saw in the test tube for all those years fits so much better with a functional medicine approach and really doesn't at all fit. In fact, it shows you why the drugs won't work. Yeah. And the other thing is we had a personal experience with this. Our daughter, uh, as she was going off to college, uh, it became clear that she had a vasculitis and she had biopsy proven vasculitis. And we took her to two world experts on lupus. She had a high ANA, she had a high SED rate. I mean, she had all the symptoms, all the signs. And so both of them said, yeah, she has, you know, early lupus and, you know, she's going to need some steroids at some point. They had virtually nothing to offer her. Then we took her to a functional medicine physician uh, up in Seattle, actually, um, who worked with Dr. Jonathan Wright. And, and she said, well, yeah, I know exactly what's going on. You know, she's, yeah, she has uh, the, you know, she has the lab work of lupus and the symptoms of lupus, but she has an incredibly leaky gut. Mm -hmm. And you need to fix the problem. This is the thing causing the problem. And so she went on this, you know, very complex protocol and she did great. And she's now, uh, you know, 12 years out from this doing absolutely great, um, has never had, quote, lupus again. Uh, and, um, and interestingly, when she, you know, goes off her protocol, when she starts, she did have sensitivity to gluten, among other things. Um, she starts getting some of the kind of the chill blade stuff again, and she gets rid of it when she goes back on. So it became clear to me that standard medical care, it often ignores what's actually causing the problem. And what year was that? What year was that? That was 20. Uh, she went off to college in 2007, and okay. this was late 2007, early 2008. So that was, was that your first, was that the seed that ultimately led to your sort of 2011 aha. <laughs> well, that was part of it, yeah. And, and of course, you know, you see it once and you think, hmm, and, but then you start yeah. seeing it coming out of the theory. I've always been interested in the, the theory. What, you know, what are the principles that drive? Why does one person get ALS? You know, why, why another person gets Lewy body disease? Why is it that Alzheimer's is so incredibly common? You know, about 15% of the population will die from Alzheimer's. It's become the third leading cause of death in the United States. 
This is a major, major glo global, I mean, talk about pandemics. Yes. Um, and there are, of course, parallels between what we're seeing with COVID-19 and what we're seeing with Alzheimer's disease. Yes. So you know, always thought, you know, what's missing? Why, why are we missing this? And I, we used to you know, sit in the lab and say, okay, if we don't solve this problem, what will the people in the future who solve this problem have thought of that we didn't? Right. Right. And right around then, you would have been able to tuck into some of those fabulous Fasano papers, actually mapping intestinal permeability. I mean, you know, when I was in the 90s, when I was shadowing a doc before I went to school, you know, he was talking about intestinal permeability all the time. But back then, it, we, that was quack medicine, full tilt. Yeah. You know, that was yeah. absolute to have it sort of elegantly um, um, put out into the scientific community, you know, led by Fasano was just really satisfying. Um, I've, I've got a couple questions, pre-questions, and then we're kind of moving to talking about your book, but this is so interesting. Um, so when you were, you were doing like high throughput drug screening, I'm just curious, did you do any natural products? Was there anything that you were pinged on that you've since incorporated into your protocol? I'm, I'm, and the reason I'm asking you is because now, of course, there are preprints coming out over, you know, millions of them just nose diving through you know yeah. since we've been in the covid pandemic and we're seeing you know a host of really interesting natural products as potential um interventions and of course there's a lot of science going on over in in china using traditional chinese medicine and i'm so it's just it's something i'm aware of right now and curious what if you've got oh, any comments there oh absolutely yeah and i and i think this is a really interesting area of course the issue is always um, if you're going to screen for things, then ultimately you want to screen for things that you can take into trial, that you can get tested, and then you can ultimately get approved. Because again, you know, this is one of the issues. Yeah. We are only allowed to do certain things. Uh, the FDA is going to approve certain things. In fact, one of the early criticisms when we started seeing the first results with patients, uh, doctors said, you know, you can never get any of this approved by the FDA. If you, uh, it was actually the first trial we proposed included a drug. Um, called tropicitron that we had discovered in the lab um, as being something that increased the synaptoblastic uh, peptides of APP and decreased the synaptoclastic peptides. And it turned out to be an interesting drug um, that uh, is a 5-HT3 uh, antagonist, um, and a, but it interestingly also interacts directly with APP, and it's also an alpha-7 nicotinic uh, uh, and nicotinic acid agonist. So it has multiple effects as a single drug. So we did look at some uh, products and in fact, galangin was one of the interesting things that came out of the screen initially. Uh, but we started by looking at all the things um, that had been FDA approved, uh, but had never advanced for anything. That things that were, that were good candidates, either that had been approved for something else yeah. uh, or that were out of use uh, or that were simply available. Um, as a, you know, as part of a screening library. Got it. Got it. That's it. It's 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 an interesting area. Um, Absolutely. So, you, you know, since 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 your first book, or really, or since really since you've been since you've started the system slash functional approach to addressing Alzheimer's. I mean, what you know, what now? Like, what have, what have you seen? Um, you know, in the eight years time you've been doing Recode, I mean, what are your, what are your current kind of thoughts around it? And, you know, where do you see the research, the science going? Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, so uh, let me take the, 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 the second one first. 
Where I see this going is that this is the dawn of the era of treatable neurodegenerative disease. So again, as a conceptual scientist, I'd like to now take this and we're beginning to look at people with macular, macular degeneration, uh, ALS, frontotemporal uh, dementia, uh, frontotemporal lobar degeneration, uh, and, um, and, and Lewy body disease, and all these others, you know, PSP, CBD, all these other neurodegenerative diseases. So the concept is, that all of these represent mismatches between the supply and the demand of a specific neural subsystem. So you have these various subsystems, ones that are critical for plasticity, ones that are critical for motor modulation, ones that are critical, of course, for vision. Uh, all these things, and what's interesting is, you know, because of evolution, we're, you know, we are, evolution is trying to help us to outdistance our competitors. All of these have Achilles heels. So, you know, if you simply don't have quite enough a complex one activity, in the long run, you can get Parkinson's disease. Um, if you're not supplying enough oxygen to your macula, because this is an area where the Achilles heel is metabolism, it is, ex it is extremely active metabolically. So if you fail on that side, you can get macular degeneration, and of course, you know, lipids are important there and, and, infl and inflammation is important there, all these sorts of things. But each of these has its own systems medicine. Yeah. So we should be able to take the same idea and generalize it, being specific for the underlying biochemistry of each of these degenerative conditions. So that's, the, that's the, the way that we're going. And we have something called the ARC project, which is doing just that. It's taking very small numbers of people, just as we did with Alzheimer's. And, you know, you have to start somewhere. We've had a lot of, it's kind of funny. We've had a lot of criticism saying, you know, you don't have a, uh, a phase three published uh, uh, crossover double blind placebo controlled trial. Well, you know, come on, this is, this is like telling the Wright brothers that they didn't stay up long enough. Um, the, the people are, that are doing the drugs are developing the next lead balloon and saying one of these lead balloons is going to fly. And you know what? The lead balloons are not flying. So, okay, we didn't stay up long enough. But yes, we're, so we've now, you know, we got turned down, as you said, in 2012. We got turned down again in 2018. We finally got approved to do the first trial in 2019, and it's, we're in the middle of it now. Um, it's uh, scheduled to be, to be completed in December. Uh, it's really been exciting, uh, and we're working with three absolutely outstanding uh, functional physicians, uh, Dr. Ann Hathaway, Dr. Kat Toops, and Dr. Deborah Gordon. Uh, so very excited to be working with them. And this is the first trial in history in which instead of predetermining a treatment and say, okay, we're going to give you Aricept or we're going to give you a lifestyle change, whatever it is, it is not predetermined. And instead, what you do is you look at all the different things, identify the root causes, just as functional medicine does, and then address those things. I think, you know, that's the way of the future and the way to, uh, that's the way to develop drugs because they will complement the, this approach just as we always talk about you know 36 holes in the roof and you got to you got to patch the different holes the drugs are excellent patches typically for one or two holes but you've got to get the rest of there in there and then as far as you know what we've learned a tremendous amount we've got people now who are over 8 years who in all likelihood would be in nursing homes at this point who have sustained their improvement and are still back at work and still doing very very well 
Uh, but along the way, we've, we've found some very important things. For example, uh, one of the things we didn't recognize at the beginning was how absolutely critical nocturnal hypoxia turns out to be. And people don't check this enough. And there was a really interesting research study that showed if you just graph the mean SpO2, so where does your oxygen sitting at night on average, and you compare that to the volumes of specific nuclei within the brain, there's a direct correlation, including critical areas for Alzheimer's disease, such as the hippocampus. So if you're walking around and you're dropping into the 80s, and we even see people in the low 70s at night, you are really doing yourself a disservice. And often people will say, well, I don't have sleep apnea, I don't snore, I'm fine. And when you look into it, in fact, there are major problems. And so that's a critical area. And of course, so much that's come up about dentition and oral pathogens, P. gingivalis, T. denticola, F. nucleatum, P. intermediate, you know, on and on, all these various pathogens that turn out to be critical. And when you look at the brains of patients with Alzheimer's, what do you see? You see those same pathogens. And you see things like herpes simplex and HHV6A and Borrelia and Candida. So these chronic pathogens are gaining access to our brains one way or another. And a beautiful study published on Candida in rodents showing that it gains access even without a damaged blood-brain barrier. Uh, so very interesting. And it's turning out that you know, this is a scenario. What we call Alzheimer's is actually about a protective response to these various insults. So um, you know, we continue to see new pieces, but everything that is reported, everything that we see fits in beautifully with this concept that this is a protective response that you are literally on the synaptoclastic signaling side. So I think that the model is predictive of what we're seeing and is going to allow us to make continued evolution and improvement of the overall approach, which admittedly is not perfect. It's where we started and then we continue to make enhancements over time. Oh, beautiful. I'm just so excited about it. Thank you. You know, thank you for, for embracing functional medicine and jumping in and, and, and being a spokes, a very elegant, uh, you know, well-stated spokesman for, for, for what we're trying to do here. Um, so I've got it. <laughs> I've got it. Yeah. It's um, I've got a couple questions just based on what you've said. Um, first of all, I did see that clinicaltrials.gov and I'm familiar with those physicians. They're all fabulous. I was very excited to see it. Any preliminary uh, results you can share? Any preliminary data that you're able to talk about yet? Yeah, as you know, I mean, I can't say anything before it's finished. It'll be finished in December. It'll be uh, published next year. Uh, but I can say I'm um, very enthusiastic. I'm, I'm so excited about it. And, and so one, and the other thing that I wanted to ask you about, so you're talking about teasing apart these other neurodegenerative conditions using this, um, you know, this, this, this lens, this functional lens. Um, and, and, you know, understanding the specific you know, neuropathophys that's occurring in each of them. But one of the things that I wanted to say that I found, and again, I found it to be satisfying in functional medicine, is that there are a lot of shared underpinnings. And the very unique pathophysiology of a given condition is almost the icing, right, at the top. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, okay, so that's what I... So we're seeing leaky gut. You know, we're seeing, you know, inflammation driven by all these... Anyway, speak to that 
concept. That is a great point. And, and you know, so, so it's very interesting. Again, you've got the thesis, the antithesis, and the synthesis here. And so, uh, yes, you could take the, the, the polar opposite view and say, you know, everything is the same. You know, the, the system is breaking down, but then you wouldn't have, it's like, why does one person get one disease and one person get, now again, as right. Jeff Bland says, you know, does, it's a disease delusion. You know, it's all that the system has failed. So I, and I, I think Jeffrey is just fantastic and he's gotten, you know, he's really changed the world with functional medicine. Uh, so uh, at the same time, you know, what does, so that's an intriguing question to me. What does separate these things? And from, from where I'm sitting, it seems that, yes, there is a, it's, the system has to all work together. You know, we, you're an organism, right? And so you've got all these systems working together. But you can, to some extent, look at the subsystems. So, for example, um, as we talked about earlier, the macula has certain requirements to do well. And so people who get macular degeneration don't necessarily get Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or anything else. Some do, but, but most of them don't. So something is different there in what has failed. Similarly for, you know, frontotemporal, you know, on and on, you can take each disease. And so when you then look at each of these subsystems, and let's take, uh, let's take what happens in Parkinson's. So in Parkinson's, you've got this highly energy demanding system that is dependent heavily on mitochondrial function and interestingly on mitophagy. You shut down mitophagy, you don't recycle your batteries essentially you end up with Parkinsonism. Um, you shut down complex one, you end up with Parkinsonism. And so again and again, it's that same sort of phenomenon. And of course, of course, it has other interactions, proteolysis critical, ubiquitination uh, and proteolytic degradation critical. The genetics teach us a lot about what these systems need, where their Achilles heels are. But when you then look at them, yes, you're right. There's a lot of core similarity. You do have to look at systemic inflammation. You do have to look at leaky gut. Um, as they say now, leaky gums, you know, all yes. these various things. And yes. you know, how are you perfusing your brain at night? But you also have, as you said, the icing. You have the thing that is directing you toward one disease or another. And, and addressing those critical aspects is going to be a little different for each thing. And it will allow us to get at each of these diseases and it'll also prioritize. So even though you may end up with a similar list for Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, it's going to be a different priority. You're yes. gonna focus um, in, in Parkinson's more on complex one and more on ubiquitination and proteolytic degradation and yes. a little more on mitochondrial function. And what's interesting to me, you know, when you don't have enough for that system, the system tries to allow you to survive as best you can without that. So what do you do? You don't have the motor modulation, so you give up the ability to have your hands sit and be at rest, you, it's, you, know, you now get the tremor. And what happens when you walk? You have to walk more slowly. You don't have the ability to go quickly because you've lost that motor modulation. And so, and, and what happens, the so-called writing reflex, if you push someone who has Parkinson's, they fall down more easily. So in all the things, you've lost that fine control that takes so much energy. So each of these things has its own different flavor that actually yes. makes sense when you yes. look at how the system works together and getting at these, I think, is going to tell us how to treat each one. It's extraordinary. It's just so interesting and just very exciting for me. Um, 
I wanted to just say, you know, we, a lot of clinicians listen to this of, of, of a variety of stripes. And I think one of the, 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 the important things here, you know, for us, um, well, as you say in your book, you know, for a global adaptation of the functional medicine model, you know, we're going to have a lot, we need a lot, a team approach, and we need a lot of providers that, you know, with different credentials. And I, because there are shared foundations, because we have to optimize total system functioning, um, there are practitioners who can become expert in doing that. There are coaches, there are nutritionists that can work um, with these basic components that all of us do in our practice and then there will be people who are focusing on this you know the icing the phenotypic expression you know doing the drill down on that top layer of the biochemistry imbalances that require you know different kind of 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 interventions and you know different degree you know how aggressively we approach um dosing with different products and so forth but it's this collaborative model of different of people trained in functional medicine different credentials like coming together and delivering this that's how i think we're going to bring systems medicine forward and have it be affordable you know it's kind yeah. of sidestep but yeah you know, and i think that's a good point and i think for one thing we now need just as we had global programs to vaccinate against polio or smallpox, things like that. We now need to take global programs to vaccinate against Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's yes. disease. And yes. this is not the same sort of vaccination. This is not about injecting people. And I talked about that in the new book, that you know, we need to have programs now that take a population yes. in which 15% of the people are going to die from Alzheimer's and it's gonna affect so many other people. This is a trillion dollar plus global problem. Yes. And now make it so that, that this is actually a rare disease and there are specific programs. It'll be a new way to think about vaccinating people. That's right. That's but it right. will be a functional medicine model. And it's been amazing to me. I agree, you know, functional medicine needs to fit in with drug development and drug testing and with allo standard allopathic medicine. And it's been surprising to me how much resistance there's been to something which is clearly getting results in so many different chronic conditions. And unfortunately, it's been much more about politics and power and control and finances than it has been about uh, outcomes, That's which is unfortunate. And of course, you know, we've, we are, you know, nudging, we are you know, poking the bear a little bit. And, and so we're seeing the volume a little louder in those ways. Um, incidentally, you know, just revert, going back to COVID, of course, it's as, you know, as Jeff says, it's, you know, it's a pandemic within a pandemic and, you know, the pandemic of, of the fact that most individuals here, I think in this country are, most adults are somewhere on the cardiometabolic continuum with some level of insulin resistance. And all of these things, of course, are part of um, underlying uh, Alzheimer pathogenesis. So I think just in addressing COVID, your new vaccine, the vaccine for the 20th century, is essential, is absolutely needed. Absolutely. No question. And I think that you're right. I mean, we are living, and I think we're, we're living an unhealthy lifestyle, and for the, in, in general, most of us. And so, you know, we're seeing that as early cognitive decline. I mean, we, we never used to see people, when I was training in the 80s, we never saw people in their 50s, 40s, 50s with real Alzheimer's disease. Uh, you know, we always thought of it as, as a disease of the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, and it's turned out to be a disease of the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. And so now we see it as one of the most common presentations 
people who are often in their early 50s, even late 40s, who are developing Alzheimer's. And so as you indicated, you know, th th this, is, this is one uh, way that you see this. And another way is that people die of COVID-19 when they shouldn't be dying of COVID-19. Uh, and they've got you know, the cytokine storm. And of course, all of the same risk factors that we see <clears throat> with Alzheimer's disease uh, playing out over decades have been compressed into two weeks with COVID-19, uh, where you know, hypertension and insulin resistance and obesity and all of these, and you know, hypovitaminosis D and, and zinc deficiency, which you know, a billion people on earth have. Um, so yeah, these are all present and we see different outcomes. And, and uh, COVID-19 has just thrown this all into relief, unfortunately. Yes, well, if we actually make this a game-changing moment, as you suggest we might, then, Hopefully, you know, it will be for not all the lives that we have lost. Um, incidentally, you know, um, autism, which, you know, yeah. you mentioned not seeing at the beginning, you know, not seeing Alzheimer's and younger people at the beginning of your career, the meteoric rise in autism, I think, has, has shared properties. Um, but instead of digressing again, <laughs> I want to talk about the six types um, and any kind of, you know, any, what, it, it, you know, in hindsight, you know, as you've, as, as your, your experience has evolved and many practitioners are working with you now, you know, speaking to what seems to be the major players of these six types. So if you can outline them and maybe your thoughts on them, you know, in Absolutely. your current 2020 lens. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So again, and again, this fits so beautifully with the science. When you look at what drives APP, you can, uh, you know, you can trace a molecular pathway from uh, NF-kappa B. So you activate inflammation with whatever pathogen you like or whatever poor lifestyle choice or leaky gut or what have you, uh, NF-kappa B, uh, of course, enters the nucleus, uh, affects hundreds of genes, uh, and uh, among those, it affects the beta and gamma secretases, which come out, interact with APP, and cleave it to drive you down the synaptoclastic pathway. So as we started to look at you know, what's driving this for each person, we found that some people, the major problem seems to be systemic inflammation, just as you see with cardiovascular disease, and just, of course, uh, increases your risk for some cancers. Uh, and you see this, um, it's changing your APP signaling. You can, again, you know, trace the pathway. And so this is kind of your typical, we often see this with a 65-year-old man who's got a high HSCRP and now is suffering cognitive decline. That's kind of the typical patient. And this is something, of course, that can be addressed with things like uh, SPMs and things like that. Um, and of course, identifying what's driving the problem to begin with. Are there specific pathogens? Is this leaky gut? Is this something else? Uh, but then we found other people that are just very different looking. So you have people where it's an atrophic problem. They've actually, they don't have a lot of systemic in inflammation. They may not have many toxins that, to which they're exposed, but they simply don't have the currency to support that massive neuronal network. You've got over 500 trillion synapses. You've got a major supercomputer inside your skull. And of course, it takes a lot of energy, a lot of support to, do, to, to keep that going. And so these are people, and the typical one, again, would be a 75-year-old woman who has zero estradiol, zero progesterone, low thyroid, you know, low pregnenolone, low DHEA, low vitamin D, is just, and you know, is dry. This is a, 
you know, something again that the Ayurvedic physicians noticed many years ago. Uh, and so these are people who have a, uh, you know, who, who have a, an atrophic, they look atrophic, they act atrophic. Um, and in fact, what's interesting about them is they don't support the neural network, but they're not inflamed. They'll often say, you know, I, I feel all right. Um, I don't have great energy, but you know, I'm, I'm kind of okay. They're still driving, they're still playing tennis, they're still doing just fine. Uh, and they'll often complain, hey, you know, what are you doing? And the spouse will say, well, yeah, because you can't remember anything new. And th this is the canary in the mind. This is the thing that goes first. Because you know, if you think about it, if, you, if I gave you the choice, Kara, waking up tomorrow morning and either you would forget you know, how to speak or how to do your job or how to calculate, or uh, you would forget the Friends rerun from tonight. You know, that's an easy choice. You can live for a long time very effectively with the things you've learned to date. You've kept the most important things. So that's atrophic or type two. And these people, you know, you need to optimize all these different factors to see improvement in them. And then uh, type 1.5, we named it that uh, because it does have features of both. Um, it is glycotoxic. These are, this is sweet Alzheimer's disease. And it's because you get the inflammatory component from the glycation of the proteins. And so, you know, we measured with uh, hemoglobin A1C, but of course, many proteins get glycated. And so you get, it's, they change their function, they can change their structure, and they can be recognized as foreign, and you can get a, an inflammatory response to them. On the other hand, you also, of course, develop insulin resistance. And so you're now not getting that signaling. All the years and years we grew neurons in dishes, you also you, you always had to include insulin, transparent, and selenium, which are critical for keeping the neurons alive. So if you don't have good insulin signaling, that's a bad sign for your brain. And of course, all of this has to be internally consistent. This is one of the things that has just driven me crazy about the Alzheimer's field. There's no internal consistency. People just say, you know, my theory is X. It doesn't comport with 90% of what's published, but that's my theory. It has to comport with the epidemiology, the pathology, the microbiology, the toxicology, all these. And of course, ultimately, you have to be able to make people better when you deal with whatever your model system is. And so that is, you know, insulin resistance, no question, the epidemiologists show us that that is a critical piece. So that's type 1.5. Type 3 is very different. These people look different. They act different. And that you have to treat them differently. And these are the people who have toxins. And they come basically in three groups, as you know, the metals and the inorganics, things like air pollution uh, or mercury, things like that. And then second one is organics, toluene, Benzene, you know, if you're out there uh, in the middle of burning paraffin candles 24-7, you are at increased risk for cognitive decline. Uh, and then, then the uh, third one is the biotoxins, of course, as we see again and again and again. Mycotoxins are huge in this, so common, so, many, so much exposure to these. And until you get people on a detox uh, protocol, you're not going to make them better. These people look different. This is the 52-year-old woman who presents with executive dysfunction rather than memory loss, or has some of both, but largely just can't put it together, can't organize things anymore. They often will have some of these non-amnestic syndromes. They may have 
primary progressive aphasia or posterior cortical atrophy, things like that. But they often are the non-amnesting, often are the APOE2-3s or 3-3s, although some of them do have APOE4. Uh, and these are people who may start with depression. They have HPA axis dysfunction. They have some of the things of SIRS. Interestingly, most of them don't have classic SIRS, but they are affecting their synapses. And so you've got to get them on detox and identify what the toxins are. And then type four is vascular. And so many of these people have poor perfusion. Um, they either have uh, the, you know, they either have poor perfusion because they're not exercising enough uh, or because they've got atherosclerosis. Um, they may have poor oxygenation at night, as we talked about earlier, or during the day. Uh, so for whatever reason, you know, again, this system is not a system that has a great foundation. The, the leading mitochondrial physiologist, Professor David Nichols, uh, who worked at the Buck Institute with us years and years uh, ago, uh, said one time that, you know, mitochondria, the, we used to think of them as things that were pretty solid, you know, like, like a Chevy. They're not. They, these things are like Maseratis. They're going 100 miles an hour, and any of them are going 200 miles an hour. And, you know, anything that goes wrong can be a problem. And so, you know, all these systems fail. Uh, and you've got to keep the, you know, you've got to keep, as you get older, optimal oxygenation, blood flow, et cetera. That's type four. And then type five is, of course, traumatic. You know, if you get head injuries, if you've got repeated injuries to your head, you are at increased risk for cognitive decline. And that can be, it could end up being Alzheimer's if you've got amyloid there, or you could end up be calling, uh, being called CTE if it's a mainly a tauopathy. But, you know, to some extent, CTE is... Uh, you know, you cleared out the amyloid, fine, but you still have the tauopathy, you still have the degeneration. You really have to think about that. Their presentation is different, and that the classic triad um, is depression, aggression, and dementia. These are people that will often beat up their spouses uh, before they are diagnosed as having CTE, for example, uh, unfortunately. So these often look different. You have to, you have to look at them differently. Um, even though they all have the pathology of Alzheimer's disease, of course, except CTE, which often has cleared the amyloid. So let me just, of, of these different presentations, you know, you talked about the 52-year-old woman who, yeah. um, you know, who, who, who's uh, suffering with biotoxin or, or, or mycotoxicity. Uh, um, is that, I mean, can that be a slow onset or can that be a, that's, that, I mean, it can be either slow or relatively sudden, I'm, I'm, I believe. And, and we've seen ahead. people who are, and we've seen, sorry to interrupt, we, we've seen people who yeah. were exposed for, we know, for 15 years and had symptoms for 15 years, but they've successfully fought it. And one of the interesting things about this is we see so many of these people presenting at menopause or perimenopause mm, or after the conclusion of menopause. And we wonder why, I was like, what, why is this so common at that time? And it, it looks like what's going on is that you have this combination of, as Chris Shade has pointed out, you're, as you're losing your progesterone, that's a critical detoxer. It's part of the detox program. And so that's part of the problem. But the other thing is, as you know, you have a, you have an osteoclastic burst for about seven years. So you're now, you know, you're doing everything for years and years to deal with these toxins. 
You know, you're, you're, you're excreting them, you're metabolizing them, you're sequestering them. And now you've lost that some of the sequestration and you're re-releasing these back into the bloodstream. Oh, so you, for whatever reason, this is a common presentation. And so, yes, we've seen people who are relatively successfully dealing with it for years. And we see other people, but it just is overwhelming. Um, and the, you know, the, some of these people, of course, because they have poor detox apparatus genetically. Of these particular, you know, of the six types, is there any one that has a better prognosis? Oh, absolutely. The toughest one is the toxin. The, the, the people who have biotoxicity, it's tough to, because you've got to really stick with it and, and you just they kind of hold their own for a while. As you know, if you mm -hmm. detox them too rapidly, they can, they can go into decline once again. If you don't detox them at all, they naturally decline. Yeah. So that's the toughest one. Um, the ones that are easiest are type 1.5, where it's really a sugar problem. If you, yeah. if you return insulin sensitivity and you return, if you, get, you start reducing um, their uh, glycotoxicity and you get them into ketosis, those are the big three, and they don't have a large vascular component already. And obviously these things go together, but if, but if they don't have that, they typically turn around and fairly, you know, within a few months. Um, similarly, if you have pure type one and it's just uh, an inflammatory process, you can reduce the inflammation quickly and see people begin to turn around. Then of course, for the long run, you want to identify what's causing the inflammation and deal with that. But those two tend to, tend to do very well. Similarly, if you've got a vascular problem and you begin to improve that, of course, as Dean Ornish did with cardiovascular disease 30 years ago, uh, then you can see people uh, improve. So the type twos and the type fours a little more slowly, but certainly can improve. And sometimes just, you know, oxygenation, they can, they can improve. Um, and uh, so, and then type five is a little bit like type two, because ultimately it's an atrophic process. You haven't had the support. You've, you've in this case, damaged the synapses instead of decreasing the trophic support for them, but you've got to get that support back and reinitiate synaptic formation. And this is where I think, you know, things like stem cells are ultimately going to be helpful. Uh, yes. Stem cells alone, a little bit like trying to rebuild a house as it's burning down, mm -hmm. but you first want to get rid of the fire and you do all the right things with a functional medicine approach, then add the stem cells. Um, so th those are the ones that are you know, easier versus harder to turn around. So still, um, obviously early is is best and we'll, we'll talk about your ideas around what we need to be what all of us need to be doing um, but you know you you can turn you've you've reported on late stage turning around late stage cognitive decline and and I think I, I like the idea of preparing the terrain to receive stem cells that makes total sense otherwise they're 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 useless and then you know some of the pharma that you were talking about earlier would certainly come in um, but you, you've successfully worked with ApoE4 as well. I mean, you're, we were oh, talking about that. Yeah, so go ahead. We tend to do better. ApoE4s tend to be easier to turn around. May, we don't know why that is, but it may be because they have a more inflammatory component. We found in the lab that uh, ApoE4 actually has a transcriptional effect. It, a subset of your ApoE enters the nucleus and binds to 1,700 different promoters. And you, know, you couldn't tell a better story for Alzheimer's. It includes things like SIR-T1 uh, and estrogen receptor. 
Uh, so really striking that you can see how it impacts the cell and how it changes the programming toward a more pro-inflammatory and of course protective. If you're, you know, if you're eating meat filled with microbes, um, that really helps you. And of course, if you're living in a squalid third world country, uh, you know, if you're living in, uh, if you're a Chimane Indian from Bolivia, you do better with ApoE4 than without ApoE4. Yeah. So that is a, so we, you know, we, we, no question. What we've realized is that there is a rate limiting step. So you may have 15 things wrong, which we see all the time. And let's say out of those 15, one of them may turn out to be the rate limiting step. So you can improve the other 14. If you don't hit that rate limiting step, you're not going to see a change in trajectory. And so then once you hit that, you get a little improvement or you get a change in the rapidity of the decline. Well, then, then you've got to find the next rate limiting step. So I call this you know, ascending rate limiting steps. You've got to figure those out one by one. And so with functional medicine, you're hitting multiple of them. So you may see the person turn around. But first, what you'll see is you're, you're, you're changing that downhill trajectory. Now, if you're late stages, you know, this is, this accelerates. I mean, that's what prions do. You know, they are, you're now getting this accelerating. It's an amplifying process. So it's really tough. It's the difference between correcting a plane that's just had its nose down slightly, and now you're just pulling the nose up again, versus one that is in a death spiral. You know, that is really tough to change. You're going to have to change a lot of things to get that to improve. But I, you know, interestingly, I got a critical letter about six months ago from a guy who said, you know, you're always telling people, come in early or else forget it. He said, look, my wife had a MOCA score of zero. She got on the program. She's dressing herself again. She's interacting with us again. She's changed our lives. We're so happy. Now, she still has a poor MOCA score but she's doing much better than she was. So how dare you tell people you know, not to do this? So we're kind of stuck in this. Yes, please get on as early as possible and preferably, preferentially do this with, uh, you know, with, with uh, a prevention of cognitive decline. That's the future for all of us. But yeah. if you don't do prevention, please start as early as possible. Yeah, yes, there are a few cases where it's late. Yes, right, right. Yeah, you talk about Claudia in your book, which is another 78-year-old woman and, you know, pretty late stage and you turned her her around as well. So, there we always need to do it. We need to be we need to be doing the work with with anyone, but I yeah, prevention for sure. I just want to circle back and kind of underline for folks who might have missed it the statement on APOE4 that you said that it's actually one of the easier ones to turn around. It's inflammation, it's relatively straightforward. So many of our patients and, and providers as well who know that they're APOE4 positive, there's a lot of anxiety around it. And it does indeed need to be tended to. Um, but, you know, the fact that it is addressable, as you're stating, is huge. Absolutely. And, and which is not to say that every single person with APOE4 gets better. They don't. Um, but we do see it, by the way, again, it is how much of this you can do. Part of this is just if you can do, if you can comply with these various pieces, most people will improve. But it's hard, to be fair. It is hard. Uh, one of the things we're trying to do right now is to simplify. If we can get, you know, if we can tell you for sure, yeah, there might be 20 things to do or 25 things to do, but they're really, these top five are 95% of it. Yes. Uh, 
that will be really helpful. So there are 75 million Americans who have a single copy of ApoE4 and about 30% of them will develop Alzheimer's unless we do something about it. And there are 7 million Americans approximately who are double copy or homozygous uh, for ApoE4. Um, and the majority of them will develop Alzheimer's disease. So we'd like to have people identify that and get on appropriate prevention or early reversal, because this should be something where they, they virtually never get Alzheimer's disease. There's a tremendous amount you can do here. So that's the hope for the future. And this idea that stick your head in the sand and don't figure out whether you're ApoE4 positive because there's nothing you can do about it. Nothing could be further from the truth. There's a tremendous amount you can do about it. That's a very empowering message, and thank you so much. So with that, let's talk about prevention. I mean, you're, you think that we, all of us, need to be doing um, a cognoscopy, and I want you to just talk about what that is, because it's, you know, it's more than just one intervention. And, you know, what's your, what are your present, so this would be evaluation, but then, you know, what we all need to be doing for foundational brain health, maybe with a little bit of an eye towards the APOE4 folks. Absolutely, yeah. So we all know that when we turn 50, we should get a colonoscopy. And actually, uh, my wife and I, uh, when we went to get these, we said, okay, this is a you know, pain, uh, but let's, we, we did it on Valentine's Day as his and hers um, so that we could get this over with. Uh, you know, and then, uh, you know, go out to, to eat together. It's like, okay, it's just something you have to get, get past, right? But in fact, nobody tells you, just as nobody tells you about dementogens, but they tell you about carcinogens, nobody says, hey, you need to have a cognoscopy. And so you need to know where you stand. So we recognize and, and we recommend that everybody should be getting checked when they're about 45. And if you're over 45, fine, you know, go, go, and, go and get a cognoscopy. And it's simple, it's three things. So it's number one, it's blood and urine tests that tell you whether you have ongoing inflammation or insulin resistance, or you've been exposed to toxins, so forth and so on. The critical things that unfortunately, the vast majority of physicians are not checking, uh, which allows dementia to sneak up on you, unfortunately. The second piece of the cognoscopy is a simple online cognitive assessment. It's simple, it takes about 30 to 40 minutes, and it'll tell you, okay, are you doing really well? Because as an example, I mentioned this in the book, a woman who said, you know, I'm here for prevention, it's in my family, we've got dementia in my family, she turned out to be ApoE4 positive, single copy, uh, and she said, I think, I think I'm still in pretty good shape. Well, she scored a 23 on the MOCA, so she clearly already had very significant MCI. She's now scoring 30, she's doing absolutely great. Uh, and so sometimes you don't realize you are in those early or even mid uh, MCI phases unless you check. So get that, that's the second piece of the cognoscopy. And then the third piece is optional for people who are completely asymptomatic and score well on cognitive assessment, and that is an MRI with volumetrics. But if you've got, if you've got symptoms, if, you've got, uh, if you're not scoring well on the test, please include the third part, which is an MRI with volumetrics. Let's check your hippocampal volume. Uh, you can be walking around with a hippocampal volume of you know, fifth percentile, or it might be 90th percentile. And that is a prognostic indicator and also an indicator of whether you may be heading down the wrong pathway. Now, you've, you've heard about this recent uh, blood test for uh, phospho-tau-217. Uh, phospho-tau is really telling you whether you have the signaling in the brain that is telling you pull back. That is part of synaptoclastic signaling. This is, test is not available yet. The hope is that it may be out next year. Um, it's claimed to be uh, specific. 
uh, and pretty sensitive. Now we'll see as time goes on, previous tau tests have not panned out, unfortunately, including the one that I thought was the most promising, which was the exosomal, neural exosomal uh, tau. It just hasn't turned out to be that helpful, but we'll see over time, this will be fantastic to have. Uh, and again, if someone tells you, yeah, you know, you're 10 years away from Alzheimer's, great, get on, you know, get on, uh, you'll really, it's not been prevention, but it's now pre-symptomatic treatment. Uh, and so that's the cognoscopy. And we recommend that everybody who's 45 or older, and especially if you think you may be having early symptoms, and especially if there's any family history of Alzheimer's, and especially if you have APOE4 as an example. So all these things make sure, because again, we can all together make this a rare problem. Yeah, yeah that's right. And I, I have to remember to circle back to you at the end to direct people, um, clinicians in particular, where, right. where they can go through the training and you know how we can make this happen. Because right. we should be, everyone, all of us should be doing this in our practice routinely. Um, ketosis is big, I think, for most of the um, types. Uh, just, you wanna just speak to that? I, we're we're yeah. kind of heading to the end and I've got, I wanna ask you yep. about ketosis, um, the dementogens, and then just a little bit on microbes in the next few absolutely. minutes. Absolutely. You know, ketosis is absolutely huge, and we don't see too many people who get better without any degree of ketosis. And that seems to be because, as you know, you can actually see it on a PET scan, that you, do, you have an energy, you know, you have an energy gap. This is an emergency. When you, when you are having cognitive decline, you see this decreased glucose utilization in the temporal and parietal regions that is associated with Alzheimer's. And so how can you bridge this gap? As Stephen Kinane has shown, you can do this with ketosis and it is absolutely crucial. And no question again and again and again, we see the people who get into decent ranges, 1.0 to 4.0 millimolar beta-hydroxybutyrate, tend to do the best. And we are, you know, you're now bridging that gap and giving the brain the actual fuel that it needs. Um, now, again, if you're not getting oxygen there, you're not doing yourself any favors. If you're not getting blood flow there. So again, all of this has to work together. And if you fail at any point, that is your rate limiting step. And you're talking about blood, measuring ketones and blood, measuring hydroxyl. Yeah, and actually we're testing a breathalyzer, which is the oh, one that's best right now, I think, in terms of actually, you know, it's got some promise. Uh, so that may be something that we can use. In the past, as you know, the breathalyzers haven't been particularly helpful. And so it, it's always been through blood. But I hope in the long run, it won't be that everyone's got to stick their fingers so often and we'll be able to do this more simply through that. But that is a, a huge area for improving people with cognitive decline. Are you doing, are you recommending exogenous ketones? Yes, so here's the thing. Uh, in the long run, we'd like to get everyone to be able to do endogenous ketosis. Um, so again, it's, this is where you're looking at, you know, the, what's the, the lesser of the two evils? We recognize, you know, taking a bunch of MCT oil uh, can be a problem for your LDL particle number. So fine, if you're APOE4 positive, you don't, don't have to take uh, don't have to take uh, coconut oil or MCT oil. Okay, take exogenous ketones. Um, one that I that, you know that's been good. Uh, Ke1 is one that's uh, that I think is nice. It's a combination of esters and salts. But there are lots of others, and there are esters out there and salts, and there are all sorts of vendors that can provide this. You know, we are agnostic. Whatever 
works the best for people. That's what we want to do. So what we recommend at the beginning is, please just get yourself into ketosis. And then over, you know, after the first month or two, you can think about now, let's see, can I get myself into endogenous ketosis? And some people like to do that at the beginning. It's fine. There's actually been published data showing that people with cognitive decline, whether you give them ketones or whether you uh, drive them into ketosis, both of them improve your cognition because you're bridging that gap. Um, and I know some people are very much against exogenous ketosis, but it, it's it's better than nothing. It is going to at least get you that it's fuel. Yeah, you your brain is starving for fuel. Yeah. So I like the idea of look, let's let's get it going, and then once we do that, now we have bought ourselves some time. We're at least giving your brain what it needs, and then let's now start fixing these things and other things. You know, is is it getting enough oxygen? Do you have nocturnal hypoxia, etc.? Yes. Then get yourself in the long run. And Julie G, who's the one who founded the ApoE4.info and actually uh, worked on the, the handbook with my wife and with me uh, to do this. So we have a scientist, we have a clinician, and we have a user who's, who's done extremely well and can tell you the practical things uh, together. Um, started, in her case, did start with exogenous ketosis, but has moved over into endogenous ketosis and has done spectacularly well for over eight years now. So yes, we use exogenous ketones, but try in the long run to do endogenous. So for the sake of time, I'm not going to pick your brain. I have a lot more questions. <laughs> Go to the book, The End of Alzheimer's Program. It's, it's, there, there's a more granular discussion and um, other resources would be, I'm, I'm assuming Julie's site, Apo, apoe4info.com. Yeah. Sure. Um, yep. And mycognoscopy.com. Okay. You can, get these, you can get a cognoscopy now directly. Uh, oh, good. Yeah, so it's easy to do. Good. Okay. So no excuse, folks, for, for us not to be doing them on ourselves and, and directing our patients. Um, a little bit on the dementogens. And, you know, what are the major, what, what, are, what are the big concern, the, the, the big players here? And, you know, how are we uh, guiding our patients to remove them, taking care of ourselves? Yeah, great point. And in fact, we're, we're discovering ones that we didn't know about. Mm -hmm. um, and just, just what we talked about earlier, um, on the metal side, it's mercury. Um, there are others that contribute, iron, copper, things like that. Uh, these high copper-zinc ratios are associated. That's been known for decades. Uh, and then air pollution, of course, has emerged as an important one, uh, especially these small particles. Uh, and then, uh, and, and, and of course, that recent article on you know fish seems to need to have about an equal a magnitude of effect on these and seems to protect you. And then some of the organics that we didn't know about, uh, some benzenes, toluenes, glyphosate, uh, uh, you know, formaldehyde, things like that, um, uh, propylene oxide, acrolein, we've had examples of some of those recently. Um, and then uh, the mycotoxins, um, these are big ones. Trichothecenes, major problem, ochratoxin A, gliotoxin. These things unfortunately affect multiple systems in your immune system, they affect your kidneys and liver, you know, affect your detox, um, you know, so that you've got all sorts of problems. And of course, affect, affect your nervous system. 
so these are these are the dementogens, and unfortunately, most of us don't know when we are getting exposed, and there isn't a simple uh, like an AIMS test for carcinogens. Yeah. So we need to be more aware of these things. We need to get ERMI scores and Hertz Me Too scores for our homes and our places of work. We need to look. Uh, we need to be aware of how much fiber we eat. Uh, we need to do better genetics and look at it. I give great credit to uh, Dr. Sharon Houseman Cohen who set up IntelliX DNA. Um, and of course, there are others as well, but you want to know whether you have null alleles in some of your glutathione-related genes, such as GPX and GST and things like that. Yeah. Um, for those of us who are poor detoxers, um, you know, we are at risk for detox-related problems. Yes. Yeah. Well, and we all have, you can't avoid SNPs and detox. I guess it just it depends on what your collection is and how you might address it. You know, this can get to be just as a clinician, it can get to be a pretty onerous investigation, essential, but big. And so I just, I, the, the clinical trial that you're doing, the fact that you guys are working on sort of what are the main starting areas and, and, you know, eventually, um, Dale, hopefully the labs will follow you and begin to re release panels, you know, where you can look at a number of different toxins of, of, from, of different types of toxins under one house and not have to go to multiple places. Biology um, is complicated, as you know. Yeah, it's complicated. Um, so we know we're dealing with a huge problem that this is a yeah. complicated, complicated organism that we're trying to fix. And so I think this is where, in the long run, AI is going to be helpful to us to tell us, okay, it's yes. really... Yes, there are lots of problems, but you can get 95% of it with these five things. Yes. And that's where experience, and of course, that's where your excellence and experience as a physician come in. Yeah, you're absolutely right. We need AI, and then we need the high-throughput lab technology so we can look at a bunch of stuff, and it's relatively affordable. Yeah, yep. that's right. Absolutely. That's exactly right. Uh, okay, so what do I want to wrap up here with? Um, I appreciate you bringing oral um, oral health to the fore, uh, and you mentioned those microbes earlier. Uh, in that, yes, and then any, you know, what do I want to say? If anything else, oh, I do. All right, I have one more question on that front. You know, in looking at your book, I mean, most of us have titers to the herp various herpes. And um, I don't, I don't know that I've ever seen them get zeroed out. Now, if you follow them, you might see some change, but. Um, the, yeah. that's, that's a pretty high bar. So it, just speak to that. Yeah, and, and, and we didn't recommend that they be zeroed out, of course. So uh, we're not expecting them to be okay. zeroed out. Okay. What we're simply saying is be aware that this may be one of the contributors. So if you happen to have, you know, early antigen from EBV, if you happen to have, a lot of got people, it. as you know, will have just high titers across the board. Yes. You know, you've got this ongoing response and be aware of it. As you know, beautiful studies out of Taiwan showing that people who had recurrent HSV-1 on their lips, uh, who treated it, had a much lower risk for dementia than those who, when they went untreated, when they were, when they were not dealt with at the time. Right. And so, you know, it's something to be aware of. We don't expect them to go to zero. Okay. And on the other hand, if you don't have those, then you're focusing on other things. Good. Okay. Well, listen, it was just a really wonderful conversation with you. I, I appreciate it so much. I could continue to ping you for another couple hours, but I'm going to, I know other people want to talk to you. Um, how do clinicians, where do clinicians go to get recode training? Yeah, so we have recode training. If you go to ApolloHealthCo.com, 
And uh, the new training is coming out next month, uh, Recode 2.0. Uh, and uh, this is, we've got some wonderful people. Uh, Dr. Neil Nathan is part of this, Dr. Cyrus Raji, Dr. Anne Hathaway, Dr. Chris Shade, and on and on. Uh, wonderful people who are doing the training and Dr. Sharon Houseman Cohen is part of this as well. Uh, so that we're trying to hit, you know, all the critical areas uh, so that people can, can learn best and get best outcomes. I'm absolutely excited about that. Folks, everything will be on our show notes. We will um, get as many citations. I know Dr. Bredesen mentioned a lot of papers, so we'll try to pull those from his team and we'll post those there. We'll post all of the links to the training, to the new book, to everything that you need to uh, be able to access this amazing body of knowledge. Dr. Bredesen, thank you so much for joining me today on New Frontiers. Thank you so much, Kara, for having me. I really appreciate it. And thanks for all the great work you're doing. Absolutely. All right, stay safe. Thanks, ciao. And that wraps up another amazing conversation with a great mind in functional medicine. I am so glad that you could join me. None of this would be possible through the years without our generous, wonderful sponsors, including Integrative Therapeutics, Metagenics, and Biotics. These are companies that I trust and I use with my patients every single day. Visit them at integrativepro.com, bioticsresearch.com, and metagenics.com. Please tell them that I sent you and thank them for making new frontiers in functional medicine possible. And one more thing, leave a review and a thumbs up on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you're hearing my voice. Um, these kind of comments will promote new frontiers in functional medicine, getting the word on functional medicine out there to the greater community. And for that, I thank you. Until next time.